0: Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. In the 1990s, there was a club in West Hollywood that was synonymous with cool. 20-something actors and musicians flocked to the tiny live music venue that was the beating heart of Sunset Strip. A young Hollywood bad boy opened up the club in 1993 because he wanted a place to hang out that matched his taste in music and his general vibe. Before long, it was the it place for celebrities to go a bit wild.
1: It was always hell breaking loose there. You know, it always felt like that club had incidents that you didn't hear about in other clubs. Again, it just catered to, to a darker, more private, exclusive environment.
0: I'm Kathy Kanzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we're going inside the Viper Room. Long before Johnny Depp and his business partners turned the small building at 8852 West Sunset Boulevard into a destination for the hottest 90s celebrities to let loose, it already had a reputation. It's actually one of the oldest buildings on the Sunset Strip and has hosted a slew of interesting characters throughout history. Built in 1921, it was first used as a small grocery store, serving the residents of the small nearby village of Sherman. Back then, the dusty road connecting Beverly Hills and Hollywood was called the County Strip because it was under the jurisdiction of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department instead of the Los Angeles Police Department. The county sheriff took a lax approach to the area, and as a result, it was soon populated with speakeasies, LGBTQ-friendly clubs, and illegal casinos, which became a magnet for filmmakers and actors. After Prohibition ended in 1933, the basic speakeasies on the strip became glittery nightclubs that attracted Hollywood stars, socialites, and sometimes even mobsters. That's when the area was rebranded from the county strip to the Sunset Strip. In 1940, the grocery store at 8852 West Sunset shut down and the small building began its life as a nightclub. Over the next 10 years, it cycled through multiple incarnations. First, it was the Cotton Club, no connection to the famous Cotton Club in Harlem. Then it was the Greenwich Village Inn, followed by the Rue Angel. And in 1950, it became a strip club named Last Call. Between 1951 and 1969, the building was home to the Melody Room, a jazz club said to be a hangout for gangsters like Bugsy Siegel and Mickey Cohn. Then in 1973, it changed yet again.
1: It was a rock and roll club. Um, it, was, it was Filthy McNasty, which was a real when, when LA punk was exploding in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. It was a real
0: hotbed of that. That's Chris Epting, a travel and music writer from Long Beach, California. He says when Filthy McNasty's closed down in 1980, the building at 8852 West Sunset became The Central. It was a you know fairly
1: traditional rock and roll club on a par with you know the Roxy, which is right across the street, the Whiskey down the way. It was just another music venue that could host, I mean, probably some smaller names that, that could book the Roxy uh, or the Whiskey, but some big names played there as well.
0: In fact, one of the artists who played regularly at The Central was Chucky Weiss a blues musician and songwriter who happened to be the subject of the 1979 hit song by Ricky Lee Jones called Chucky's In Love. During his time playing at the Central with his band, The Goddamn Liars, Chucky Wise met and became friends with a young Hollywood star who would soon become his business partner. John Christopher Depp II was born in Kentucky in 1963 and moved to Miramar, Florida in 1970, where he grew up. At the age of 16, he dropped out of high school to play in a punk band called The Kids, which did pretty well, opening for bands like The Pretenders, The Ramones, and Talking Heads. In 1984, the band moved to LA, hoping to land a record deal. When that didn't happen, they took part-time jobs selling ballpoint pens over the phone just to make ends meet. Eventually, Johnny Depp sort of fell into acting when his friend Nicolas Cage set him up with an agent. From there, Depp landed small roles in Nightmare on Elm Street and Platoon, and that gave him the acting bug. So he took some classes at the Loft Studio in Los Angeles and with a private coach. By 1987, three years after coming to Hollywood, Depp became a teen idol when he scored the role of high school cop Tom Hansen on the Fox TV show, 21 Jump Street. Say jump! Down on jump Street. Say jump! After four seasons, Depp left 21 Jump Street in 1990, and he could have been stuck in teen idol hell, but instead he rocketed to legitimate movie star status after starring in Tim Burton's masterpiece, Edward Scissorhands. Following the success of that movie and his high profile relationship and engagement to Winona Ryder, Johnny Depp was considered by some to be the Prince of Hollywood. In addition to reading books by John Kerouac and William Burroughs, he also had a reputation for partying hard. In 1993, GQ magazine summed up Depp's contradictions by calling him the philosopher king of the stoners. After the Central shut down at the beginning of the 90s, Depp's friend, Chucky Weiss, suggested they purchase the building and make a go of it as club owners. Depp liked the idea, saying he wanted to create his own place where he could hang out without being invaded by other people's tastes in music and decor. He had a clear vision of what he wanted for the new club. He wanted it to be similar to a 1930s speakeasy that featured music by artists like Fats Waller and Cab Calloway a style referred to as Viper music. Hence the name, The Viper Room. The actor invited his childhood friend and 21 Jump Street co-star Sal Janko to be another partner in the venture. Jenko and Depp grew up together in Miramar, Florida, meeting when they were just nine years old. When Depp landed the role on 21 Jump Street, Jenko followed him to Vancouver, British Columbia, where the TV show was being shot. And eventually, Jenko managed to score a reoccurring role on the show, playing Sal Blowfish Banducci. Back in LA, the Viper Room opened its doors on Saturday, August 14, 1993 with an invitation-only party attended by a long list of actors, directors, and musicians. The guest list included Mary Stuart Masterson, Crispin Glover, Christina Applegate, Quentin Tarantino, and Tim Burton. And of course, Johnny Depp was there dressed in a zoot suit, keeping with the 1930s vibe the Viper Room was aiming to emulate. Despite it being a star-studded party, LA Times music journalist Steve Hawkman called it a refreshingly low-key event, with guests munching on chips and salsa served in plastic bowls. Hawkman described the decor in the club as dark deco, all black except for some green sconce light fixtures and a Moon Over Havana mural painted on the wall behind the club's tiny stage. The outside of the club was also painted all black, with the Viper Room logo, a top hat wearing half snake, half woman on a pair of dice painted in white near the front door. That night, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers blew away the crowd with an amazing set. It was their first live appearance in over two years, and they brought the house down with some old and new songs that had yet to be released, including Mary Jane's Last Dance, which wouldn't debut for another three months. Evan Dando from the Lemonheads also took the stage, along with Shane McGowan from the Pogues. And of course, Chucky Weiss and his band, The Goddamn Liars, also took a turn. Johnny Depp's band P was supposed to perform too, but they ran out of time. Over the next couple of months, the Viper Room became the it place to hear live music. Big musicians would just drop in and get up on stage to jam. Some of the surprise performers included the Black Crows, Lenny Kravitz, Slash from Guns N' Roses. And in September 1993, the day before sweeping the MTV VMAs, Pearl Jam tore it up on the Viper Room's corner stage. Keep in mind, the Viper Room is tiny, designed to hold less than 200 people. And Chris Epting says the stage is maybe a foot and a half off the ground
1: you really feel like every space in that place, you're on top of the performer. And it's a very kind of claustrophobic environment. Everyone's a part of of, of what's going on there. And everyone's kind of pushed up together.
0: Among the stars who hung out at the Viper Room regularly in those early days was River Phoenix. On the night of October 30th, 1993, the 23-year-old actor and friend of Johnny Depp, arrived at the Viper Room with his girlfriend, actor Samantha Mathis, and two of his younger siblings, Rain and Leaf, who now goes by the name Joaquin. Like Depp, Phoenix was one of Hollywood's hottest young stars. He first gained fame in the 1986 film Stand By Me, and then in 1989, at the age of 17, Phoenix was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for his work in the movie Running on Empty. And in 1991, Phoenix received rave reviews for his role in the haunting indie film, My Own Private Idaho. With his James Dean good looks and on-screen intensity, he seemed on a trajectory to superstardom. Samantha Mathis thought they were just going to the club to drop off Rain and Leaf. But after they walked inside, Phoenix told his girlfriend he wanted to stay because he was asked to go on stage with Johnny Depp's band that night. In addition to Depp, the band P also featured butthole surfer singer, Gibby Haynes, Sal Jenko, and Bill Carter. Joining them on stage at that particular gig were two members of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, bassist Flea and guitarist John Frusciante. River Phoenix spent his early childhood with his hippie parents in the Christian cult, The Children of God and he was known for his adamant stand on pure living. He was a strict vegetarian and an active environmentalist, but somewhere along the way, he also became a drug abuser. His girlfriend, Samantha Mathis, says Phoenix was already high when they arrived at the Viper Room that night in October, 1993. In fact, Phoenix had just been on a major drug binge with Chili Peppers guitarist, John Frusciante, getting high for several days. Mathis told The Guardian in 2019 that she went to the bathroom at the club and when she came back, Phoenix was being pushed out a side door by a bouncer. She was unaware that while she was in the bathroom, Phoenix had snorted cocaine and heroin, a combination known as a speedball. He followed it up with some Valium. Mathis ran to the door and went outside, just in time to see her boyfriend collapse on the sidewalk and go into convulsions. She banged on the door for help, but no one answered. Frantically, Mathis ran to the front of the Viper Room, bursting inside to look for Phoenix's siblings. They all ran back to Phoenix, who remained lifeless on the sidewalk. And that's when Joaquin placed a desperate call to 911.
1: Calm down a little bit, all right? Yeah, I'm calm, but he's having seizures. Just get over here, please. You must get over here, please. Okay, take it easy, okay? Okay, now I think he's
0: out volume or something, I don't know. Please, because he's dying, please. Phoenix was rushed to Cedar sinai Medical Center, and when he arrived, he was in full cardiac arrest with no pulse or blood pressure. Attempts to resuscitate him failed, and at 1.51 a.m. on October 31st, 1993. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down, but... What if I told you that the Avril Levine we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Levine? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. River Phoenix was declared dead. He was 23 years old. The Viper Room temporarily closed after Phoenix's death and fans left heartfelt notes, flowers, and tributes by the door to honor the actor. He was now part of Hollywood's tragic history of young deaths and talent lost too soon. The Viper Room itself was also added to a list of establishments made famous because of tragedy, like the Chateau Marmont, just a few blocks away where John Belushi died in 1982. Sure, Johnny Depp's club was famous from the moment it opened because of his connection to it, but the death of Phoenix exalted it to a whole other level of infamy. It became the kind of place people would travel to just to look at from the outside. Despite all of the attention that Phoenix's death brought to the club, it still somehow managed to feel underground. Celebrities continued to flock there, and it remained a place where they could go without feeling like they were on display. In 1994, while musicians were dropping by to hang out and jam on the Viper Room stage, another one was serving drinks from behind the bar. Adam Duritz, the lead singer of The Counting Crows, was having trouble dealing with the fame that followed the success of the band's first album, August and Everything After. Released in 1993, it included this breakthrough hit song. After touring for the album, Duritz returned home to Berkeley, California, and nothing was the same. He was recognized everywhere he went, fans camped out on his lawn, and people were constantly coming up to him in public. Duritz was miserable, so he moved to L.A. and rented a home from actress Christina Applegate. She was a Viper Room regular and knew the bartender there. One thing led to another, and Duritz, one of the most famous rock stars on the planet at the time, was soon pouring beer and mixing drinks for the famous clientele at the Viper Room. He had lots of friends who worked there or went to the club, so it was kind of like he was hanging out, but it was less crowded on the other side of the bar.
1: He went there because he knew he'd be safe, he knew he wouldn't be hassled, and it was like a headspace for him where he could kind of deal with what was going on. But you couldn't do that at any other bar on this truck.
0: Durrett stayed at the Viper Room for about a year, During that time, he met Jennifer Aniston, which led to a short-lived romantic relationship. All the while, the Counting Crows were recording their second album, Recovering the Satellites. Duritz was going into the studio in the afternoon and then slinging drinks at the Viper Room at night. I mentioned Christina Applegate, the young actress who gained fame in the 1980s, playing Al Bundy's daughter, Kelly, on the Fox sitcom, Married with Children. In addition to helping Adam Duritz get a job at the Viper Room, she was also a founding member of a burlesque group that appeared weekly at the club before it evolved into a sexy all-girl pop group. In the 90s, Applegate's LA roommate was a dancer choreographer named Robin Anton. It was Anton's dream to put together a burlesque dance troupe, and she and Applegate, who also had a dance background, spent many nights at home practicing routines in their garage-slash-dance studio. By 1995, Applegate and Anton were on stage at the Viper Room, along with three other dancers performing to songs from the 30s and 40s dressed in corsets. Gentlemen, hold on to your hats. Ladies, hold on to your gentlemen. It's time for the Pussycat Dolls. The Pussycat Dolls were fun and sexy, but the girls had a strict no nudity rule. And even still, the show was so popular, it became a regular Thursday night feature at the Viper Room with guest dancers like Carmen Electra and Gwen Stefani joining them on stage. Eventually, the Pussycat Dolls with regular guest Carmen Electra moved to the Roxy, where even more celebrities clamored to join the ensemble as guest dancers. Everyone from Charlize Theron and Scarlett Johansson to Paris Hilton and Kim Kardashian appeared on stage. By then, Applegate had retired from the group to focus on acting, but the Pussycat Dolls remained the hottest act in town. In 2005, they evolved into a pop group, landing a record deal with AM Interscope Records after Gwen Stefani brought record executive Jimmy Iovine to see a performance. He says as soon as he saw them, he had a eureka moment and believed they could be Moulin Rouge meets the Spice Girls. Don't you wish your girlfriend was hot? like me don't you wish your girlfriend was a freak like me don't ya? Today the pussycat doll's remains an internationally recognized brand with a Las Vegas lounge, clothing brand and workout videos and to think it all started as a bit of fun at the Viper Room The interesting thing is, if you go online, you won't find a ton of pictures or videos from those early days of the Pussycat Dolls or any of the artists who performed at the Viper Room. Because it was the 90s, no one was walking around with a smartphone in their pocket to capture those moments. But Chris Epting says it was more than that there's
1: this unspoken thing there about you never see a camera. You don't even see, you don't even see, for whatever reason, people like with their cell phones up. And it's just the, when you walk in there, it's not a policy. You just kind of feel like that's not cool here. That's unacceptable.
0: As a result, there was a lot of shenanigans going on there that we often didn't hear about until years later.
1: I mean, look, it was obviously a place that, I don't want to say catered to, to sort of drug, drug use. But that said, it did have that element when you went in there of being kind of a den of iniquity. You know what I mean? It was, it felt illicit. But, But again, I think they were going for that. And I think celebrities knew they could probably get away with a little bit more in there.
0: That level of privacy and anonymity is the reason River Phoenix wasn't the only famous person to overindulge on drugs at the Viper Room. Courtney Love revealed in a recent Instagram video that Johnny Depp gave her CPR when she collapsed outside the club in 1995. That same year, Australian actor, singer, and 90s heartthrob Jason Donovan overdosed during a 21st birthday party for model Kate Moss, who was dating Johnny Depp at the time. Donovan wrote in his 2007 memoir that he had a cocaine-induced seizure just as Gloria Gaynor was singing Happy Birthday to Kate Moss. 911 was called, and before the paramedics arrived, Donovan says he woke up and In Excess singer Michael Hutchins was rummaging in his pockets, looking to see if he had any more drugs on him. Hutchins whispered to him, it wouldn't be cool if anything was found on you by the medics. Donovan was taken to hospital, and he was fine. In fact, he was discharged after three hours and returned to the party at the Viper Room to apologize to Johnny Depp, who told him not to worry about it. Depp then gave him some advice. Go to your room, get some sleep, and for God's sake, take it easy in the future. I mentioned Michael Hutchins. He was joined at the Viper Room the night of Kate Moss's birthday by his girlfriend, supermodel Helena Christensen. He and Johnny Depp also got on the stage that night performing the Van Morrison song, Gloria. The Australian singer was known to visit the Viper Room whenever he was in Los Angeles, including a visit in November, 1997. Hutchins was in LA for a week recording a solo album, and on the night of November 16th, he performed with an all star group of musicians that included Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top and producer musician Danny Sabre. The last song Hutchins sang that night was Suffragette City by David Bowie, and it would turn out to be the final song he ever performed in public. Six days later, Michael Hutchins died by suicide in a Sydney hotel room. He was 37. There were so many memorable performances at the Viper Room during the 90s. But one that really stands out as special was the 1993 appearance by the Man in Black.
1: But I got a little limp now when I walk and got a little tremolo when I talk. But I finally found out who I am. I'm a walking, talking miracle from Vietnam. Drive on. It don't mean.
0: When Johnny Cash took the stage at the Viper Room, he was on the verge of releasing the album that would put his career back on track. American Recordings, which was produced by Rick Rubin, included a mix of new original songs and interpretations of songs by contemporary artists like Nick Lowe and Tom Waits. When Cash performed at the Viper Room in September 93, he wasn't just trying out the new material, he actually recorded a couple of songs from the album live that night. Among the people in the audience for the now-legendary performance by Cash were Sean Penn, Dwight Yoakam, Tom Petty, Johnny Depp, and Juliette Lewis. Chris Efting says it was performances like that that gave the Viper Room an almost magical quality for the people who visited the clubs in the 90s and the bands that played there.
1: I was interviewing the band Kiss, and they did a release thing there. They had a book coming out or something, and I went... Took, I took the four guys afterwards downstairs to sort of the private space, and we were talking about the Viper Room, and, the, and even they were saying, they're like, you know what, we've, we've been in a lot of places in our career, but there, there is something kind of special here because you, you feel who's been here. You can kind of feel the history and, and uh, the infamy that's gone on before it.
0: In September 1996, Johnny Depp brought gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson onto stage for a live event at the Viper Room.
1: How Thompson.
0: Depp, of course, played Thompson in the 1998 movie Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and the pair share many of the same characteristics and eccentricities. With a smoke in one hand and chewing gum, Depp read some of Thompson's writing for the crowd.
1: But even without being sure of history, it seems entirely reasonable to think that Every now and then the energy of a whole generation comes to a head in a long, fine flash for reasons that nobody really understands at the time.
0: The interview Depp did with Thompson that night was included in the 2003 documentary about the writer called Breakfast with Hunter. In November, 1998, the Viper Room shut down for interior renovations, reopening with a special party in January, 1999. Courtney Love and her band Hole played an acoustic set in front of a bunch of celebrities, including Tom Hanks, Rita Wilson, Drew Barrymore, and Jennifer Aniston. The cover charge for the event was $200, with all proceeds going to a yoga and detox clinic, which sounds very California. By 1999, Johnny Depp wasn't spending much time in Los Angeles anymore instead choosing to live in places around Europe, including France, with his partner, Vanessa Paradis, and their daughter, Lily Rose. Then in 2004, Depp's 11-year ownership of the Viper Room came to an end when he was forced to hand over his shares of the infamous club. What happened exactly is still shrouded in a bit of mystery, but here's what we do know. In 2000, Depp's business partner Anthony Fox accused the actor of mismanaging millions of dollars in profits. Fox filed a lawsuit against Depp, and just days before Fox was set to testify in the case in December 2001, he disappeared and has never been seen again. The case proceeded without Fox, and as part of a settlement, Depp handed ownership of the Viper Room to Fox's daughter, Amanda, who sold the club to the investment bank, Blackhawk Capital Partners. In 2008, Harry Morton, the founder of Pink Taco Restaurants, became the majority owner of the Viper Room. Morton comes from a long line of restaurateurs. His dad, Peter Morton, founded the Hard Rock Cafe and hotel chain, while his grandfather, Arnie Morton, co-founded Morton's Steakhouse. After investing in the Viper Room, 27-year-old Harry Morton began a reno of the Little Underground Club, but promised it would maintain its original charm. He added better lighting, leather couches, and an upgraded sound system, and set to work revamping the lineup of bands that played there. He also promised to expand the brand to locations in Las Vegas and Scottsdale, Arizona, but that plan was eventually mixed. In 2020, Morton, who over the years was romantically linked to several Hollywood stars, including Demi Moore, Lindsay Lohan, and Paris Hilton, died from a cardiac arrest brought on by an undetected heart defect. He was 38 years old. Before he died, the Viper Room was sold in a blockbuster real estate deal. Four properties at the corner of Sunset and Larrabee were sold for $80 million to a development company, which has plans to build a 12-story building on the site of the Viper Room. Chris Epting says the proposed project has outraged many people. It gets
1: to this idea, this facelifting of Sunset Strip, they really are kind of surgically removing these really integral pieces of it, which is unfortunate. You know, I, I get that this is the world we live in and, and cities have to grow, I mean, but, But they also have to strike a balance between growing and preserving the essence of why people want to be there in the first place.
0: Construction on the new complex, which will include a live music venue as well as condos and a five-star hotel, is expected to begin in the fall of 2023. If and when the Viper Room is torn down, Chris is hopeful that the club will be remembered for more than just the place where River Phoenix died.
1: There's a lot more that's gone on there. A lot of young actors and musicians have been doing lots of drugs back then and he unfortunately, you know, succumbed. But that shouldn't define the place. I mean, I think music should define it and there's been a lot of good music there and a lot of good events and things that are really special. You know, and hopefully when the history of the place is written, the focus is more on that.
0: Thanks for listening to this look back at one of the coolest places to be in the 1990s. And thanks to Chris Epting for sharing his memories about the Viper Room. He is author of 40 travel and history books, including James Dean Died Here. I'll put some information about Chris and his work in the show notes. If you want to hear my full interview with Chris, head over to www.patreon.com slash history of the 90s, where subscribers always get to hear uncut interviews. If you've got a suggestion for a show, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a message through social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and on Instagram at That90sPodcast. You can also send me an email. The address is 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kathy Zora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.